ending anything. We're still in the starting stages. And the last three times we went through Revelation, it was not so slow because the purpose was not to go slow verse by verse. It was to cover broad strokes, broad areas. But this time around, I'd like to go a little bit slower and digest more of the words of each verse as much as possible. There'll come a time in which we go through the book where I'll be going a bit faster. So now we're in chapter 1 and verse number 8. Chapter 1, verse number 8. I am hoping that you will not get too bogged down in a lot of the details, but I want to bring out some important things that are details in this book. So chapter 1, verse number 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, said the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom of and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard behind me and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia and I'll stop there. Now in verse number eight, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Twice in these short verses, this is I am Alpha and Omega. Uh, that is of course the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, which indicates to us that he is the beginning, he's the end and everything in between. And so the voice identifies himself as God of the Old Testament. Now let me give you some verses here that we can look at and then I will cite some because there's a lot of verses I wanna to get to in the Old Testament, but one especially in the Old Testament it's important for us to see Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Because he does say here that I am the Alpha and Omega, there's a reference in Exodus chapter 3 that is a real strong fundamental reference as to God speaking to Moses and then Jesus later on himself using the same words, I am. And so when you tie it together, you find out that Jesus Christ is saying, I am God. I am the God that is in eternity. I'm the God that was in the Old Testament. And I, although I'm the son of God, I'm also God, God as the son. And so Exodus chapter three, uh, you remember when Moses was confronted by God in the desert and how did, how did God get Moses' attention in the desert? After he left Egypt, he's in the backside for 40 years and suddenly he sees something burning. And yet, what, as he gets closer, what he sees is burning is a bush, but it's not burned up. It's like a miracle, a real bush burning, but it is not consumed. And that gets Moses' attention. As Moses gets closer, here's what we find out happened. In verse number five, it says of Exodus chapter three, and he said, draw not nigh hither, stop. Don't come any closer. Put off thy shoes. And when he says put off thy shoes, we know that he means probably sandals or something like that, not uh, shoes that we have today, certainly not flip-flops. Okay, or not fancy Italian leather shoes or something like that. It's take off your shoes from off thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now here is what you want to learn practically. As he comes to this site that is burning and is getting his attention, he comes up to this burning bush. Here, here's a voice. And the voice says, stop, come no closer. Take off your shoes because where you are standing now next to this bush, it is holy ground. Why is that piece of sand, that piece of desert holy the bush is burning God talks to Moses and he says take off your sandals take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy why is that place holy this is just in past just a little thought to think about some things why is it holy well isn't where God wherever God is isn't that holy now the dirt or the sand the desert itself was not holy there's nothing sacred about that little piece of that plot of, of sand but it's holy because God was there it, it's kind of like in the New Testament right now your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost that's why your body's a holy body so your body is just flesh it's not really worth a whole lot it's dirt and chemicals but your body is holy because God is in you by the Holy Spirit and that's why this place is holy and he says in verse number six of Exodus chapter 3 
Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham and of the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. Can you imagine the scene? For he was afraid to look upon God. Verse 10. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11 and 13 says this. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Remember, Moses had killed a man, an Egyptian, 40 years before. And he fled Egypt. And it was a very humiliating, humbling, embarrassing thing because they knew that he was a Hebrew, part Hebrew. And so uh, uh, he's hiding in the desert. And now God says, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses doesn't want to go. He's lost face. But God says, go back there. And then Moses says to him, to the Lord, uh, whom shall I say sent me? Look at verse number 13. Uh, Behold, I, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall send them, the God of uh, send to them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall send to me. What is his name? Watch carefully. What is his name? What is God's name? What shall I send to them? Verse fourteen. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So God says, My name is I am. I am just very simply I am now that's the uh, eternal one the all-existing one the one who has the beginning has the end I'm the Alpha and the Omega and so Jesus when he came centuries after this deliberately uses the word I am many times and John who wrote Revelation also wrote the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of John it is the most it is the most powerful book in which Jesus Christ tells who he is now he said that too, and other writers of the Gospels wrote uh, about what he said, but John especially has emphasized the I am aspects of who Jesus is. And he cites Exodus chapter 3, which is why the Jews in Jesus' time wanted to stone him for blasphemy, so for saying, you, you think you're God? Who do you think you are saying you're I am? Only Jehovah God can say I am. How dare you say you are I am? You are a carpenter's son. And so Jesus deliberately uses the words I am. Now listen to these references. Let me just read them to you. John 6, 35. Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. The Jews then murmured at him, and because he said, I am the bread of life, which came down from heaven. In verse number 48, I am that bread. I am the living bread. Again, he's using to describe himself the title, I am. That's what God told Moses, I am. Here's this man, a carpenter's son saying, I am. Now, can you appreciate them being upset with him and finding fault with him? Because here's a man, as far as they know, claiming to be God. That's, that's how dare you? Now look at chapter, I'll read chapter 8, verse number 12 of John. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Now I am the light of the world. John 8, verse number 12. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Interesting that verse always has a good application to the Christian because before we were saved, we walked in darkness. Now that we're saved, we have in us the light of life. And not only did he give us light when we got saved, he gives us light to give us direction. He shall not walk in darkness. Now an unsaved man or a saved man, both if they walk in darkness, both will stumble. Now, never buy. I once looked at a car in Milanani years ago <laughs> in the dark at night after 8.30. It must have been like after church. Looking for this car, use a flashlight. You just cannot see a car well in the dark, even with the flashlight. You got to see a car in the daytime. And so if I had bought that car, when the day came, I'll bet you I would have been disappointed and why didn't I do this why did I buy this car at night I can't see at night I need to have daylight to see all parts of the car the paint if it was in a wreck I, you know seeing little dents little funny paint you know the way it, you can only see it in the daytime not at night and so if you walk in the darkness saved or unsaved or unsaved you're gonna make mistakes but if you walk in light he will give you guidance now chapter 9 of John verse number 5 
as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So I am the bread of life, I am the light of life. And then in chapter 10 of John, verse number nine, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. In verse 11, he says now in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He says that again in verse 14. So now he says, I am the good shepherd. All of these have very strong significance to the Christian. And one day I might just preach a series on the I am's of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11 of John, verse number 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. That's a great verse. That's an encouraging verse. Because we believe in him, one day we shall be rising from the dead as well. In chapter 13, he says, I am he. I am he. And so all of these verses tell us that Jesus Christ deliberately took the I am for himself. He identified himself as God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they have a very wrong theology about who Jesus Christ was in eternity. So witnesses say that he was once a created angel or he was a created God. Mormons believe that he's once a spirit dean, uh, spiritual brother of Lucifer, which is like unbelievable. And he won a wrestling match. Therefore, he became the Messiah, the Savior. Uh, no, he says here, I am the eternal God. What do you do when you have varying opinions, different opinions? You go by what the Bible says. No matter how many millions of people say this, you go by what the Bible says. Now, in Revelation 21, look at these verses. Two verses in Revelation 21 and 22. This is very important. I'm, I'm staying here just for about another minute. And I want you to see that the one who is speaking to John identifies himself as I am. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And Revelation 21, verse number 6 tells us, And he said unto me, This voice spoken to John, It is done. This voice says to John, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now look at chapter 22, verse number 13. After you just read in chapter 21, verse number 6, a voice saying to John, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Now once again you have this statement, but notice who says this. Revelation 22, verse number 13. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work shall be. Verse number 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, the question very simply to ask logically is, who is saying in verse number 12 and 13, I am Alpha and Omega? To identify who is saying that, just look at verse number 12. Behold, I come quickly. The question then is, who is coming quickly? Who is returning? Well, Jesus is returning. Aha! Jesus claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega. Chapter 21, verse number 6. God says he's Alpha and Omega. Now Jesus says he's Alpha and Omega. There's only one conclusion that you can draw, and that is that Jesus Christ claimed to be the eternal God. And so, what does all this mean? Well, all this means is that the nature of God, the nature of the Son of God, is very important to God himself. He never wants anyone to misunderstand who his Son is. The most important person in the Bible is his son, Jesus Christ. And when you study the Bible about Jesus Christ, you get a very clear picture of who God says that he is. And if we would deny Jesus Christ's rightful identification, then we are the ones who are in the error. We're the heretics, we're the false teachers. And so as much as, as, much as a, a parent could be proud of a son or a daughter, a child, and if that child, if that parent is accused of stealing or lying or doing something wrong at, at school, immediately that parent who knows that child even more than others on the outside would defend his son right away and say, no, he would never do that. I know my son. In a very little way, that's like saying God the Father is very careful to identify who his son is, his nature, the eternal God. And he doesn't want anybody to cheapen his status bring him down to our level we keep the son of god up there where he belongs right now also let me let me give you some verses from isaiah 
The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. It's a long, long book. Some parts are really hard to read. But in Isaiah, you have some real strong verses about what God is like. And when you hear these verses, remember Jesus Christ, who claims to be the Alpha Omega, he has these qualities that I'm about to read to you about God the Father. Listen carefully, Isaiah 41, verse number four. Who hath wrought and done it, creation? Call it the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and will be the last. I am he. That's like saying Alpha and Omega. God says, I'm before everything. I'm going to be here after everything is done. Now, Isaiah 43, verse number 11. I, even I, am the Lord. Beside me, there is no Savior. That's a real strong ooh to say that God says, I'm the only Savior and I'm the only God. Listen carefully. Isaiah 44, verse number 6. Thus saith the Lord God, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Where have you heard that before? Revelation 21, Revelation 22, Revelation 1, 9. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. <laughs> this is almost comical. God says, is there no God besides me that can do all of these things? He says, I don't know of anybody. I don't recognize you. I look around. I don't find anybody as powerful as I am. I look around in eternity. There's no other God besides me. How big is this universe? Here's how big it is. This is the, no, this is not the universe. This is the universe. Let's make it like this. You may appreciate my perspective drawing. <laughs> okay. All right, this big cube. Uh, not quite uh, into perspective, okay? <laughs> so this is supposed to meet right here. Let's go like that. This big cube is the universe, and this is our solar system, but it's not that big. And this big volume of the universe, God says, I look over here, I don't see anybody around that did this like I can do this. I look around here. I don't see anybody who can hold this thing together. I look around my universe. I look down in our solar system. I see Earth and I look in Washington, D.C. And I don't see some politician, no politician who's big enough to make a law to save this planet. He says, nobody can be like that because I'm the only one. I look around this universe and I don't see anybody who can make anything. There's no other creator, no other God, there's no other savior. And that's what God is saying. And the very thing that God says, Jesus claims to be that too. Here's another one. If that's not strong enough from what God says about himself, he says, there is no God beside me. Isaiah 45, verse number 21. I a just God and Savior. There's none beside me. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful. And Jesus Christ claims to be that same person. Now, I mentioned Job when it says not to criticize them, but to point out the fact that they don't believe Jesus Christ is God, the Son. They say that Jesus Christ is a God. Jesus Christ in John 1, verse number 1, says he is God. The word is God. There's a big difference when you have uppercase and lowercase. This one letter makes a big difference, doesn't it? That makes a big difference. Jesus says, I don't recognize any other gods around now. You may call people gods. You may call things gods. You may have idols as gods. He said, but there's only one God, and that's me. It sounds kind of egotistical. When you think about this, doesn't God have the right to say he's the only one? Right. Because he is. Right. All right, here we go. Now, uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1. Verse number 9, John continues by saying, I, John, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Every part of these, this verse we will say something about because it has meaning for us. Companion in tribulation and in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I, your brother, I, John, your brother. You know who John writes to? He writes to fellow Christians. He writes to other brothers. He writes to the seven churches. I, John, your fellow 
your companion. I'm your brother. I'm your brother, spiritual brother. Uh, John had a bond of fellowship with his spiritual brothers. Uh, he is somewhere on this little island all by himself in a little penal colony, a prison, a prison island for, for, for wicked criminals. He's there. He's not a wicked criminal. He's separated by water from the mainland and he cannot have visitors come across in a little boat. There's no ability for him to fellowship with others. The Apostle Paul, when he was under house arrest in Rome, he had people come to him. Timothy went out to find him in Rome. That was a very casual incarceration. But here on the Isle of Patmos, separation by water, but he had a bond of fellowship with other Christian brothers and sisters because you cannot stop people from praying for one another. No matter what the distance is, no matter what the situation, you can still pray for them. And so they all suffer in various degrees. He says, I, John, verse number nine, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation. Companion. Do you know what a companion is? When you're on a trip, you're with a friend or friends, they are your companions. They are your friend. They're traveling together. Uh, Brother Carlton, he has some friends, a husband and a wife and some others. The wife didn't go on this trip, but his, his friends are in Italy. They're on a trek. Not a pilgrimage, but they're traveling for about a month. They're walking. They're walking. Everything that they have is on their backpack. They're walking. They think this is fun. They're walking. This is the second time they're doing it. They're walking really. And when they come to the end of the day, they find a little place where they can sleep on the floor or whatever. And they think this is great. I don't think that's great. If I am on a long hike, I want to stop where I have hot running water, air conditioning, a nice restaurant, nice hot food, cold ice cream, maybe a swimming pool. Next day, go walk some more. It's kind of bearable if you have that in view at the end of each day. For them, they're going to find a hostel and get a community shower and all these kind of things, or a community bed, and I, you know, I, I'm not into that kind of thing, but they think it's fun. So Carl says, you go have fun, show me the pictures, I'm, I'm, I don't want to go there. <laughs> now, there are companions. There are companions going together, they're walking together. A lot of miles each day, companions. Do you know that the Christian, John says, I'm your companion, we're companions in tribulation. Well, how about that? Do you know that you have three companions? You all have three companions? Did you know that? In about five minutes, I'll tell you who your three companions are. In this life, you have three companions. One, two, and three. You have three companions. Take a guess as to who these three companions are in the Christian life. Remind me in about five minutes. I might forget, but remind me. So John says he's abundant fellowship with these other Christians, and they all suffer in various degrees. John suffered on the Isle of Patmos as a criminal, but he wasn't there because he was a criminal. And other Christians in his time suffered too at the hands of the Roman Emperor Domitian. But maybe not so severe, but they still suffered as Christians. Um, but John suffered for the right reasons. What is the reasons or the reasons for John's suffering? Can you tell? From 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9. What are the reasons for him suffering? Can you tell? Verse number 9. Why was he incarcerated? Why was he in prison? Why was he separated from the mainland? Why was he all by himself among these other real convicts? What was his crime, if there was any? Look at verse number 9. I, John, also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ was on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he went to prison. For the testimony of Jesus Christ, for the word of God. He was preaching the truth. And because of that, the government didn't like it. Rome didn't like it. And he's suffering for the right reasons. Now, um, this leads me to telling you that if you do suffer for the right reasons, uh, you should, in a strange way, for the Christian, the Christian's a strange creature in this world. We don't see things the same way as the world sees things. We see things differently. <coughs> our, our viewpoint is different. We're like this. We see things going on, but we think up there. This happens, 
But we don't just see what happens. We see beyond that. We look up because there's something going on. And we're going through something because of something heavenly. There's a reason for that. And so uh, let me read to you one verse. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse number 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Peter says, uh, Christians, when something bad happens to you, when a trial comes, it's like a fiery trial. It's like you're burning up by this by this, this trial of some sort. He says, don't think it's a strange thing that's happening to you. Why does Peter say that? Why does Peter say, what happened? Oh. Now, Peter was not an unkind man, but if you can just imagine Peter hearing somebody say to him, Peter, uh, pray for us because our house burned down. What? Yeah, um, yeah, my kids, they, they were careless and they left the stove on and you know, the fire started there in the kitchen, the fireman said, and so it said, we lost everything. Now, that's a real trial, a literal fiery trial, literally. And then the Christian says, God, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, it's hard to say at the moment why it happened, but the Christian looks at something, and then he looks up and sees something besides what he sees. And God says to through Peter, don't think it's a strange thing if you go through a fiery trial, and he says in verse number 12, it is to try you. It is to try you. It's trying you. To try you. It's trying you out. It is trying to do something for you. It's not just to you. It's something for you. It's trying you. The fiery trial, he says, is trying you. And John, when he writes to his fellow Christians, they're companions in tribulation. They're being tried. He's being tried. John's being tried. Now, I want you to... We should come to 1 Peter chapter 1. We should look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter has some good things to say about trials. He knows about trials. 1 Peter chapter 1. When John says that he has companions in tribulation, he's really saying tribulation goes with us in his lifetime. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1, all the way down to verse number 7, Peter writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse number 4, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Verse 5, we, or who, are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be reviewed in the last time. Verse 6 connects us to verse number 5. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold that perisheth, will it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now in verse number 6, we're rejoicing through this fiery trial. And he says in verse number 5, we're kept by the power of God while we're going through these fiery trials. You know what you learn there? Whatever trials that Christians go through, John, his fellow Christians, what they're going through, the fiery trials, they're still kept by the power of God. They're not on their own though they're going through the trials people say on the outside people are not Christians say well if God loves you how come he lets your house burn down well if God loves you how come you get cancer well if God loves you and he cares you pray to him and you believe in him how come all these bad things happen to you you lost how much you lost $50,000 what I thought you was a Christian I am well how in the world did God let you lose all that they're trying to get you to feel like bad. They're trying to get you to feel like you're a loser. They're trying to really say by talking like that, that you know what, I'm okay. Your God's not worth following. Your God's not worth believing in because look what he let happen to you. And that's the kind of attitude that they can have. But John doesn't have the attitude. Peter doesn't have the attitude. They're talking about rejoicing because they're looking at what really happened, but they're looking above too. So he says, it's a trial of your faith. You're being tried. You're being tested. 
What is the test all about? What's the testing for? Well, you took a test in school when you were growing up. It was to prove one thing to the teacher and to you when you took a test or a quiz. What is it to prove to the teacher? And what do you prove to yourself when you take a test? Now, I never did like tests in school. I wanted to come in, I was, oh, I'm sick, I can't come to school to take a test. Well, I found out that if I missed that quiz, I had to come back the next day. Whenever I come back, I take it again. I still gotta take the quiz. So I might as well go to school, take the test then. What does the test prove to the teacher and to you? Is to prove to the teacher you did read your assignment and you know, understand, you comprehend what you read and the questions that you answered correctly proves to me that you understood what you were reading. It also proves to you as you're writing on the answer, oh, 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 now there's nothing worse than taking a test if you're not ready for it. There's nothing better than to take a test when you say, oh, I know the answer, and you go, oh, easy. You turn in real quick. Whenever I took a test, which I hated to do in school, if I knew some answers, I was so anxious to get it done first because I, I got it right, I thought. The testing is to prove to you that you are by faith, still living by faith, and that you your, your faith is still intact so that you will still follow Christ even though it looks like, it looks like things are just bad. You're still gonna keep your faith in Jesus Christ. And it proves to God too, the test is to show God too that you are confident in Him, even though things don't go right, things sometimes go like that. Am I talking real life? Yes, I am. So we are in securing Christ even though now, let me say something else about suffering and trials and testing. It is for a purpose. I want to emphasize that. In verse number 13 of 1 Peter 4, verse number 13, he says, But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. That's another reason why we sometimes go through trials in this lifetime or even suffering. It's because Christ suffered when he was on earth, and as followers of Christ, we may be called to suffer as well. Usually it's in the form of persecution, not so much your, your, your house burned down, that's trials, and there's a similarity, the difference between that and persecution. But um, we go through difficult times because the Lord, in the in the in the work of in the form of persecution, He was persecuted for righteousness' sake. We too shall be persecuted for that reason as well. And so He says, "Rejoice if you're partakers of the Lord's suffering." Now He says in verse number fourteen, First Peter four fourteen, "If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye." For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and on their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Uh, suffering then, he says, could be something that you go through because it'll bring glory to God. Now who likes suffering just for that reason? No one likes suffering. No one likes persecution or tribulation or trials. But if we're approached with the name of Christ, he says we should be happy for that because we're identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ and he was reproached. We're followers, we will be reproached. How does that play out? Can you give me an example of how this is playing out when it comes to being reproached for the name of Christ? I'll give you one quick example to prime the pump so you give me another example. My example and then you give me an example. All right. Um, if your child likes or you, if, if, um, if your husband or somebody that you know likes sports and that person is a Christian and they're on a team that's successful and then they got a big game or they have a game on Sunday but you know you need to be in church and then yet the pressure's on for your son or your daughter, for your husband or, your, or somebody to, to participate in this team sport that you voluntarily signed up for. And now uh, you got an important game and it's on Sunday. But you know, I, I'm a Christian, I, I go to church on Sunday. If we're gonna play a game, I can play it before Sunday morning or before or afterwards, you see. You can do both if it doesn't conflict. If it conflicts, you choose. Uh, what, what time is that game? What time is that championship game? Sunday. Okay, what time do you want us at the field? I want you to do it at 8 o'clock. Okay, what time's the game? Game 10 o'clock. Hmm, okay. You know, I have a I have an appointment already at, at Sunday at, at 10 o'clock. I can't make that. What? You're on this team. I need you. You're my pitcher. You're my star. I need you to come. I'm sorry, I have a I have an engagement that I'm committed to. What is that engagement so important to miss this championship game? I gotta go to church. Oh, come on. Church? You can miss church. You see, uh, and then they, they kind of reproach you for doing something that's very basic and simple. They think you're being a kook to forfeit this big opportunity, this memory that you're going to have. You're going to win the World Series, whatever, and you're not going to. You're going to forfeit that. To go. And so if you do the right thing, 
sometimes you're going to get reproached for that. You're going to get criticism for that. Now, that's a choice that this kid, this parent, the parents have to make. Now, if it's a mandatory thing, it's a different thing. Sometimes Carmen has to go to work on call on Sunday. Well, that's, she can't help that, but she's always here. But sometimes she has to miss because she's got to go to work. That's not the problem. The problem is when we choose to, to, to go and do something that is not really wrong within itself. But, you see, when we have a choice, we choose to do the right thing. But the reproach comes because, because people don't understand the life of a Christian. Now, let me, this is big enough to say this. We, we suffer, we get reproached, we get uh, harassed, we get persecution, we get trials, because um, that's the nature of the Christian life many times. But sometimes we get trouble because we are the ones that make trouble. Now, come over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse number 15. After he has told us, if ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Then he says in verse number 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Now, Peter says, all right, if you suffer for Christ, thank God. God will give you strength to go through it. It'll be all right. But he says, if you suffer as, he says, don't suffer for these reasons. Don't have trust because of these reasons. Don't have persecution because of these reasons. The reasons are self-inflicted reasons, meaning you cause trouble to come your way because you are doing something wrong and there's a consequence for what you do that's wrong. How many believe that there's consequences in life? There are consequences in life. Do this, this will happen. In physics, it's called the law of action and reaction. Light a fuse, something's gonna happen. Blow into a balloon, something's gonna happen. Action, reaction. He says, if you suffer for Christ because you live and right, he says, take it as a Christian. God is glorified. God will honor you. But if trouble comes your way because of your bad action, you will have a bad consequence. Example. He told you that none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, even as a busybody. Some Christians not believe, some Christians not believe in any kind of a law. They don't believe in any kind of a law. They don't believe in any kind of government. They say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm accountable to God only. They live in this state as an example. And they say, God owns me. He's my master. No one is my master except God. So this person, this Christian says that. He wants to drive a car. What must he have to drive a car? Well... You need several things, right, to drive a car. You need to have a driver's license. You need to have insurance, okay? You need to have the car registered. You gotta pay, pay, pay by the pound to drive that car every year. You have to have three things in order. This Christian says, you know what? Jesus Christ is my master, not the governor of this state. Nah. He says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get my license. Well, up to you. I'm not getting insurance. Well, I don't know how you can get a car without having insurance. And I don't know how you can drive a car without a license. I don't know how you can drive a car on it if you don't have it registered. Well, people do have a car. They drive without insurance all the time. That's why we have uninsured motorist insurance. Because some people somehow get under the radar and they drive around town. They don't have insurance. I don't know how that happens, but it happens. You get pulled over because of a broken bulb or your, your turn signal doesn't work. What's the cop ask you when he pulls you over? First you get pulled over, you know that blue light that flashed like that? It's a real, it's a real pain if it's you that he's pulling you over. And, it, and you look in the mirror and he says, you, pull over. That's happened to me, but they were facing me. I was facing them because it was coming out too fast. 45 and 35, can't slow him in time because he already got in the radar and he does this to me. <laughs> you see me coming out, he does that to me, he comes over here. Ah, oh, my heart sinks. I know what that means, it's a ticket. So I got to pull over, now I step on the brake, it's too late. He got me, I'm going 45, it's 35. He got me twice in, in a year and a half. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's gravity's fault. 
I pull over, he walks up to me. You know why I pulled you over? Yeah, any sunglasses. Hello, sir. Yeah, I pulled you over. I says, um, I think so. I was going too fast. <laughs> he says, yeah, he's going 45. I said, yeah, well, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I got distracted. No excuse, you know. I, I, I said, no excuse. He says, okay. He asked me for three things. His license. License, he says, sir. Registration, insurance. Three documents. I have them on me. If I don't have one of them, there's a hefty fine. Now, sometimes I misplace my license. I misplace my, my um, what else do I misplace? My brain. I misplace my license. And uh, sometimes I'll be careless and drive without my license, which is not a good thing to do. I have all three documents. I'm okay, but I still get the ticket. He says, you can contest this. Yeah. But if I don't produce my license or insurance or registration, if I don't produce one of them, if I don't produce any of them, I'm in big trouble with the law. Officer, you know what? I'm a Christian. I don't have to have insurance. I don't have a license. I don't have the registration. He's going to say something to me. What will he say to me? I don't care what you think. You're in the state of Hawaii. We have laws. You must comply. I don't even know how you're driving here. I'm going to get, I'm going to get crushed by this officer, and I deserve that. Sometimes Christians get themselves in deep, deep kimchi because... They just don't think they should obey any kind of law. They're the exception. And that's what Peter talks about. We suffer as people who are evildoers or as thieves. And so, um, suffering for Christ is honorable if it's for the right causes. Now, did I not ask you to remind me about the three companions that travel with us? Here's, here are the three companions. Go to Psalm 23. Psalm chapter 23. We will identify two of the companions that travel with us as Christians. There are three companions that travel with us in this life. Psalm 23, 6 tells us we have two that travel with us. Let's see if you can see what I see. Do you see what I see? The psalm says, do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Psalm 23, 6. What follows us in this life? Goodness and mercy. And the third companion that is with us in this car through this journey called life is tribulation. John calls his Christian brothers companions in tribulation. These three travel with you all the time. Well, this is not the great tribulation. This is tribulation with a small t. There is the tribulation, and there is tribulation that's common to everybody, especially to Christians. And so there's a big distinction here. Look at verse number 10. I need five more minutes. First, uh, Revelation 1, verse number 10. 110. John said a lot so far. And now he says in verse number 10, I, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. What is this day that he was in? He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, do you know how you figure out what the Lord's day is? Here's how you think. Before we run off to some supernatural, some spiritual, some ultra, some fantastic definition of the Lord's day, think about in the Bible incidences in which the Lord's day is referred to. For example, in 1 Corinthians 16:1, the apostles met on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. In the book of Acts, met on the first day of the week, besides other days. And so that gives you a clue about what this Lord's Day might be. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Why is it the Lord's Day on Sunday? Because on the first day of the week, something happened that affected all of mankind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christians in the New Testament, in the first century, they assembled on the first day of the week as a testimony to the fact they believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day. Now, the first day is Sunday. The day before is what day? What's the day before? Sabbath. Sabbath. Okay. Saturday, Sabbath. It always is a Sabbath. It always is Saturday. The next day is always Sunday. This is day number one. So this is the seventh day. 
So the Christians meet on the first day of the week to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's what they did. Now, the Sabbath is not Sunday. Sunday is Sunday. The Sabbath is still Saturday. There are some people that believe you must worship God on the Sabbath day, on Saturday. Who are these people called? What is this church called? You must meet on Saturday. Otherwise, you could have the mark of the beast. What group meets on Saturday? It's okay to identify them because this is just a part of our life as Christians in this world. They are called Seventh-day Adventist, S-D-A. Seventh-day, Seventh-day Adventist. They advocate the seventh day. That means they worship on Saturday. And it is so important for them that if Christians meet on Sunday, for some groups in that group, this is the mark of the beast, which is not. But that's how they view this because it's so serious to them. It is so serious to them that they must, they must, they must. And I kind of emphasize to you that they really mean they must. They must meet on this day. And they have Old Testament verses to prove to you that you must meet on the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Part of the Ten Commandments, they say. Okay. But there's a difference, and there's a reason why the Christian men on the first day of the week. John says, I was in the Lord's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I think that's talking about he was on the first day of the week. Now that's uh, debatable, but still that's what I think, and uh, I think I'm right about that. I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. I'm never wrong, right? No. Nobody's ever always right. So they assembled on the first day of the week, verse number 10. I was in the spirit in the Lord's day and heard, verse 10, behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So behind John on the, on the Lord's day, he heard a voice that was loud like a trumpet blast. Okay, this is interesting. This voice that he heard was like a trumpet. This was God speaking to him. Can you think about the first time you read where God spoke to somebody in the Bible? The first time that God spoke to someone? I'll give you a clue. It's in the Old Testament. <laughs> the first time God spoke to someone. I'll give you another clue. He didn't speak to a crowd. I'll give you another clue. He spoke to a man and a wife. I'll give you another clue. It's in the book of Genesis. I'll give you another clue. It was in a garden. <laughs> Is that enough of clues? Really? I mean, you ought to be able to find that one already, right? It was God who spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. Where art thou? Genesis chapter 3, verse number 8. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, when he spoke to them, it was an audible voice. Like, you hear my voice, like I hear your voice talking. So, but it wasn't like a trumpet, but it was a clear voice that they could understand. Now, in the last days, you know how God has spoken to us in the last days? According to Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3, God in the last days spoke unto us by His Son, by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this world, and because He was God in the flesh, He spoke to us through His Son. But then his son has gone away. And what did he leave behind for God to still speak to us? Pretty interesting, I think. And so when the voice says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, what thou seest, write in the book. John will write down what the Lord told him. And we shall soon move on really quick into chapter 2 because he writes to seven churches in his time. There are many other churches that wrote to these seven churches. And these seven churches speak about future things. It speaks about what's going on in their time. And we'll learn a lot of things about what happened in these churches and how God said, good job, or uh-uh, you gotta stop doing that. And so a lot of things to learn, practical things from Revelation as we keep moving on. So that about does it for chapter one. And uh, we spent five weeks, six weeks on that so far. But like I say, no need to be in a rush when you're trying to get to digesting food. You gotta chew your food about 20 times. Don't they say that? 20 chews when you chew meat for it to digest better in your, in your tummy. 
when you chew, that's like five one, two, three. I don't count one, two, three, five. I don't chew my ice cream, I just swallow it, you know, but when you chew meat or something, it digests the beginning, first in your mouth, all right? Uh, you know what, as I look at chapter one, there are, after verse number 10, there is mm, quite a few verses left. And I will try to summarize next Wednesday and try not to get bogged down, but it's hard because as I look at these verses, there's seven stars, there's a golden girdle, a golden girdle. There's seven candlesticks. What are those things? Uh, there's sharp twisted sword. John falls down like he's dead. So the mystery of the seven stars, a lot of things still. And if we would just be patient and just take our time going through, you might find out that you're gonna have a lot of good notes to use at some point to help someone else understand this. Suppose the mysterious book. I have found out that it's a very practical book besides revealing about the future. We haven't gotten to the future yet, which is chapter six through 19. That is the great tribulation. That's what everybody focuses on. That's where the curiosity is. That's where bad stuff happens in this world. Well, we know what's gonna happen, so it's okay. We've already seen the tape. We've seen the end of the video. We know it's going to happen. We know who wins the game. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray and dismiss for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Help us, Lord, to uh, do it justice as we teach through it. Help us to get a blessing here and there. Learn about what you said to John, what you revealed to the seven churches. All of these things have meaning to us today as Christians. And uh, as we go along, help us to uh, enjoy going through your word and get spiritual refreshment and nourishment by it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.